This is David Bernstein, founder of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values, and this is the SpeechCast, a podcast and webcast of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values and the Speech Project of the Jewish Journal. Um, I'm really fortunate to have with us today Brandy Shufatinsky. Brandy is um, a social worker. She just got her doctorate in education. Um, she's the newest member, I'm proud to say, newest board member of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. Um, she's an activist. I know this because she was active on the California Ethnic Studies curriculum. And uh, we've talked before, and I know she has a lot to say about the current moment. So, Brandy, it's great to have you on the SpeechCast. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, um, Brandy, I'm, I'm very curious to learn more about your upbringing. Um, you, were, you are Jewish by birth, but talk a little bit about that. Sure. So um, I actually discovered my Jewish heritage later in life. Um, I'm like a lot of um, Black Americans descended from enslaved people where a lot of our ancestry, history, culture has just been erased simply through the, you know, the chains in, of bondage. Um, mm -hmm. So reconnecting with our culture, indigenous cultures and heritages has been a bit of a struggle and hur hurdle for me. And, you know, like I said, for, uh, for a lot of Black Americans, um, my husband is also Jewish. We've raised our four children, Jewish in a Jewish home. Um, yeah. That's, uh, that's great. So um, at what point in your life did you sort of do this uh, investigation and did you become a practicing Jew? The, well, it's actually come in, in spurts since I was an adolescent through my twenties um, by getting as, as uh, you know, like ancestry.com census records, um, DNA testing, not just for me investigating my family tree, but also people who have been, who are relatives reaching out and, and us reconnecting through, through all of the, uh, the capabilities that exist nowadays and, and doing that, that's been years in the making. Um, my husband and I, when we, when we got married, we got married very young, um, had our oldest son, Dimitri, very young, and we have always uh, raised him Jewish. Mm. Um, you have two boys in Israel right now, right? Yes. Yes. And, and you went to Israel for the first time a year, right before the pandemic, did you tell me? No, it was actually during it. We went out last uh, July. We were there for about four months. That's and it great. was my husband, mine, and our two youngest children's uh, first time there. Our older two boys had been a few times. Right, right. And you plan on going in a few days if they let you in. Yes, fingers crossed. <laughs> fingers crossed. Yeah, absolutely. So um, let's. There's a lot to talk about, um, and uh, you you just finished um, your education doctorate. Um, there's been a lot written about education schools and PhD programs putting out educators who are sort of ideologically motivated, and that then seeding both university culture and K through 12 education. What was your observation um, in in study, getting your doctorate in education? What was the ideological and intellectual environment like? Um, interesting. Uh, so I, I recently graduated. I, I earned my doctorate in inter international and multicultural education. And um, my professors, my peers are brilliant people. 
Um, it, I learned a lot from them and with them. And it was very interesting to be in an academic environment that seemed um, also hesitant to challenge a very dominant ideology and narrative. Um, there were a lot of the readings we had to do and topics that we had to research and, and, and write about were pretty one-sided. And saying that, you know, those of us who chose to also offer a different ideology or a different opinion, we were welcome to do so. But what was presented was uh, there was a lot of groupthink in that. Mm. Um, to what degree did your doctoral work focus on some of these issues, if at all? My personal work? Yes. All of it. <laughs> so, uh -huh. Talk about that. What did you okay. write about? So my first um, semester, I started January of 2018. One of the courses I took um, was the social, social movements. And so it was looking at uh, various different social movements, historic uh, and current. Um, and what I focused on in that course was the, the social movement uh, that women, girls and women in Iran were um, engaged in as, as far mm -hmm. as like, freeing, uh, protesting against compulsory hijab. Um, and I focused, I mean, a lot of my work, I try to focus on uh, women's issues and girls' issues in, in international relations and in domestic relations. And so I, I did a lot of research and writing on that. Um, many, many people in my, my class weren't even aware that that movement was occurring. I think there's been, and that's an example of a dominant narrative being pushed that um, really focused and centered people who women who chose to wear a hijab as some for form of either you know spiritual or religious belief or ideological and national belief with a, a very strong dismissal of the girls and women who were against compulsory hijab because they were against laws and restrictions forcing women to dress in a certain way mm. yes. so um and did, were you, did you work in sort of, how, how did these various ideologies that we're talking about, critical social justice, critical race theory, play out either in your personal work or in your studies more generally? Um, so as you mentioned, I'm a social worker. I practice social work from a strengths-based uh, perspective and lens. Mm. And so that is really rooted and found, founded in meeting people where they are and also um, encouraging, supporting, and identifying individual agency. So a lot of the current um, move, social movements that are, that are self-defined as progressive are kind of ignoring or stripping away individual agency, which is one of the things and one of the issues that I have with ideology surrounding a certain a certain way critical race theory has been implemented or the attempts to implement it in education, that mm. it's stripping away agency and also really not acknowledging strengths-based perspective in doing the work and in practice. Mm. So there is a, the debate now over CRT is there's a people, there are people who are saying, well, CRT is not really being taught in K through 12 education. I think uh, the gubernatorial candidate in Virginia, Terry McAuliffe, um, former governor of Virginia, um, said it's a right-wing conspiracy. What's your view on that? Is it actually being taught as far as you can tell? Is it being debated about being taught? Is it not anywhere to be found? What's your sense? 
Um, first of all, I take issue with anyone who tries to paint CRT as either left wing or right wing. It's not a partisan issue. It's a theory, like the theory of gravity or the theory of evolution. It is one lens and one framework in which to look through things. So I don't take issue with it being, and, and it's not something that can be taught. It's something that can be taught through. It's a lens. Critical race theory isn't teaching history. It's not, it's, it's looking at history through a particular lens. It's not teaching English. It's looking at English or literature through a particular lens. It's a theory. The issue isn't whether that lens is used in schools. The issue is whether it's the only lens that's used in schools. And that's the difference between education and indoctrination. Mm. In spaces of learning, multiple perspectives should be presented so students are encouraged to use their own critical thinking and analytical skills to grow and develop. If only one theory or lens is presented, that can't happen. So um, I interviewed um, Professor Eric Smith well, on another podcast, not this podcast, Hold My Drink podcast. Um, and uh, Eric is a professor of rhetoric at your college. Uh, African-American thinker, founder of Free Black Thought. Um, and uh, he talks about empowerment theory, which sounds a lot like what you're suggesting, which is really starts with the individual and make sure that we present messages to the individual that help them realize their potential in the world rather than messages that may stifle their creative output. What, what is that how you look at it? In, in, in certain senses, yes, I think that it's important to present that as well. Um, I'm, um, <laughs> I'm really firmly in the middle. I think that I, I really push back against the idea that there's one thing that should be pushed and that's going to solve all of our problems with schooling right. and education in America. I think that presenting multiple ideas and multiple lenses is what will really um, engage students in learning and also making sure it's age appropriate. You know, certain mm -hmm. certain students at a certain uh, emotional intelligence level can handle more complicated materials and other ones can't. And I think that, you know, really getting back to what's age appropriate, not determined by teachers or parents, but really looking at, you know, the sociology behind it. There are those of us who are experts in this field, social workers, that can actually be utilized in this conversation in a way of what's appropriate to teach at what age, what causes more harm to children and what actually uplifts and supports them. So I wanna, I wanna run past a thesis of mine about this, um, that there are people who are denying that CR, the CRT lens is being used or taught or however you'd like to phrase it, but they will acknowledge and they believe strongly that we should sh teach how racism shapes societies, institutions, and systems. That sounds to me a lot like a CRT-oriented perspective. Um, and now, and, and they'll very often point to American past. We'll say, well, there was slavery and there was Reconstruction and Jim Crow. And without a doubt in my mind, those are examples of racism shaping institutions. I, there's no question that slavery was a, a racist institution through and through, that Jim Crow was a racist set of institutions and culture through and through. Yet, um, beginning in the 1960s, things began to change. And to me, it's an open question, the degree to which various institutions and systems 
are shaped by racism and that the, and it's a factor. It doesn't mean it's not. There are times in my view where clearly racism is playing a predominant role and other times it might not. And I want to open that conversation up so that people can debate it and think through it. Am I? What do you think of that thesis? Am I wrong? No, I mean, I think that what's being presented is if, if you know, they don't want to say it's CRT, if the powers that be want to, you know, refer to it as something else, it's just playing a semantics game. And that's really not going to lead to any any type of productive discourse and discussion. Um, okay, so it's CRT-esque. I think that the there's no denying, you know, like you mentioned, that race-based hatred has played um, a role in, in how systems have been set up in the United States of America historically. And some currently, I don't, I, I think denying that would be ridiculous. Um, and just like denying that I, as a black woman, have more access to certain things that say my grandmother who was born in Jim Crow, Mississippi, didn't. Both are, both can be true at the same time. Um, I'm not into the playing the semantics game. I think it's a distraction. And I think it's also part of what leads to everything being very partisan. And it shouldn't be. This is about educating our students so that they can grow up to be uh, contrib positive contributing members of our society and curious contributing members of our society. Right. So you were involved with the California Ethnic Studies curriculum debate. You're not, you don't live in California, but you grew up there and you're an active uh, voice on that. Tell us what your observations were about that curriculum and how it played out. Sure. So um, I'm one of many, many, many people who volunteered countless hours, um, really trying to make sure that that racism and bigotry wasn't instituted in California public schools. And a lot of groups um, came together and worked really well trying to push back against this idea that it's OK to contribute, further contribute to systemic racism under the guise of, of social justice. Um, I, I observed a lot of semantics uh, games being played with, oh, it's just white nationalist right-wingers who were against this. They wanna erase black and brown history. Um, and the groups that were saying that were ignoring the fact that many of the voices that were opposed to the model they were presenting were black and brown people, um, were immigrants, were people who have been historically marginalized because of certain systems set up. And, and, you know, there again, it becomes a, something that shouldn't be, but has become more of a, a partisan political game with our children's futures, you know, in, in at the at the center of it. Um, I also observe, you know, I'm a, a follow the money person and there's a lot of money to be made by people who are pushing something that is at the heart and core, very divisive. And they're, they've pushed their own models of teachers' trainings and they're charging school districts, that's taxpayer dollars, thousands of dollars to come in and re-educate teachers to then re-educate students. You know, the curriculum building industry is a moneymaker. Mm. Yes, as is the diversity industry in the corporate sector as well. Yeah. Um, the, um, so I, I think I was having a Twitter exchange with someone. I used the exact same language you did, that I don't oppose the teaching of CRT. I see it as a one of several theoretical lenses. And immediately someone seized on that and said, what are the other theoretical lenses that you would that you would offer up? And I think they see this as a trap in a way that I'll say something like culture may be a theoretical lens or um, or um economics or poverty may be another way of, of looking at this. Um, 
And it's sort of a gotcha question. How do you, how would you answer that question? There are multiple other theories. One of them actually being feminism, ableism, any type uh, homophobia. If we're looking at systems and, and looking at histories and what's been erased or what hasn't been told fully or what, what uh, lens has, it hasn't been told through, we can pick a multitude of, of groups to look at history and in literature and everything else through. It, it's not limited just to race. And I right. think that we have um, current examples of that today. I, I mentioned in a conversation before that um, we can talk about systemic uh, racism, but there are other forms of bigotry that, that exist. And if we only talk about systemic racism, then we're ignoring those. And one example that I, I give is um, blood donation. Men who engage in sex with other men are legally discriminated against from donating blood. And since COVID, that's actually come up a lot because mm. men who have gay men who've attempted or wanted to participate in donating plasma, plasma for research were actually legally prohibited from doing that. So if we only look through a CRT lens, we're ignoring that and putting it aside. And so I think that the lens and the other piece of it is that history isn't um, theoretical. There's historical facts and certain things that happened. And there's no, there shouldn't be a denying of, of that. It, it, it's not a, a us versus them concept. History mm -hmm. is the good, the bad, and the ugly. Right. So, but if, if you just talk about feminism and homophobia, which are obvious, uh, you know, obviously also factors in how people were treated uh, over time. Those are still arguably critical lenses. I mean, there may not be critical race here, but they're critical lenses. Are there other ways that one could talk about disparity? Like even if you isolate the case of uh, African-Americans living in the inner city, or by the way, um, or by the way, whites in blue collar areas that are economically depressed and are facing opioid problems. Are there other ways of looking at those disparities beyond sort of um, oppressed versus oppressor narratives? Mm -hmm. Well, there's constructive lens. And again, I, but, but, but before we go there, I would ask, well, what's the goal of looking at, at history or looking at disparity through a particular lens? And what's the, what's the goal of looking at disparity? Right. This it might be if we know, understand the root cause of disparity, we're able to narrow the disparity. Part of what I worry about is when there's an exclusive focus on racism um, and that becomes the dominant discourse of the time. We miss other factors that are also important and we actually don't address the problems effectively. We mm -hmm. delude ourselves into thinking it's just about X. We focus on X, everybody gets implicit bias training, and lo and behold, the disparities don't go away because there are other issues at work as well that need to be addressed. And I think that's a real disservice that we're doing to the people who need to be most lifted up. That's, so I that's mean, why I like, I think it's an important question. No, I think that we can, we can start by listening to the people. And a current example of that in social movements has been a defund the police movement that has dominated a lot of a lot of the narrative. And then you go into communities and many people that live in the communities that are riddled with crime are actually against defunding the police. They want reformation. They want more money for training. They want to hire um, better trained, high, higher uh, educated police. They don't want to defund the police. And that goes kind of into how 
discourse gets hijacked by a particular group of people and they dominate the narrative because there isn't real conversation with the people that are living in the thick of it. Right. You, if, you if, mentioned, mm-hmm, yeah, I'm go sorry. Ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was, if you, if, if you were to ask somebody who um, was lower income, um, highly, highly um, academically capable and they were wanted, and you were going to ask them what they wanted for their, for that, or their parents, what they wanted for their children, what type of a- academic environment they wanted. I don't think that lowering the bar would be the answer. Right. Right. Exactly. So we're only hearing a slice of voices. Sometimes when we, when we hear this, we've just sort of chosen them and we've deemed them the authentic voices. And then we're missing from a, a, a lot of voices out there who may be more in number actually, and mm. would really like to um, see their kids make it in the society that we have with some changes to to it as well, I'm sure. Um, you, you had mentioned um, the term constructivist um, theory, theoretical lens. Can you describe what that what that is? Sure. So it's building up. I think that there 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 are there's an one camp that wants to deconstruct everything without actually defining what will replace what they've torn down. And um, there's another camp that actually wants to build up. We, we, I think we've, I honestly identified the obstacles and the hurdles and the issues in American society in regards to whether it's racism or homophobia or sexism. I think that those have been identified. Um, now, how do we address them and build up systems that actually are more inclusive and that are more empowering? That's a direction to go. The whole tearing everything down and not even being able to define what's going to replace it is a deconstructive approach. Constructive is building something better. Right. Um, so right now, there's a lot of discussion in the Jewish community over these issues. Um, you know, we're raising Jewish Institute for Liberal Values is raising these issues because we're worried that there's been sort of a singular view on these issues gaining ground and they're um, excluding other perspectives and that we're not having a really rich, thoughtful dialogue on these issues. Um, too many people are being signed Ibrahim X. Kendi as if it's a Bible rather than a book. And they're not talking about these texts in a critical, open way. That's our um, observation. Um, what, what is your feeling about that? Have you picked up of any of those vibes in the Jewish world? As I know you, you deal with them in the broader level, broader society. How about in your experience within the Jewish community? I think that there's a fear um, that isn't, it's not exclusive to the Jewish community, but it right. exists there of being um, like deemed racist. And I think that that's kind of with, so be hesit- hesitating a little bit to actually come out against ideology that's actually illiberal because it's like it, it does it it doesn't align with democratic liberal ideology or values and so there's this shock at the discourse that's happened like this huge rise in anti-semitism coming from the far left um because it, that this is something new that we haven't experienced at this level in the united states and also hesitation to really speak up and speak out a little bit just wondering like okay who am I even speaking to? Because in the Jewish community I've seen, we're really speaking to ourselves because we've been shut out of so many other spaces. Right. So that's a good, that, I'm glad you went there because I, I'd like to explore that a little bit more. Um, 
I think it may be dawning on people now that some of the terminology that emerges from critical social justice ideology can be quite divisive and that divisiveness, that power versus powerless paradigm that is infuses the discourse, then gives permission to people to apply it to Jews who are privileged or to Israelis who are powerful and to dismiss anybody else as being powerless and, and so forth. And that that might be giving rise to new novel forms of anti-Semitism. Is that something you're seeing? It is to an extent. And I'm also a bit more cynical where I feel like that anti-Semitism has always exist, existed mm-hmm. in those spaces. And now um, there's actually just uh, more acceptance of people showing it, showing their bigotry. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot, I mean, a lot gets, uh, it doesn't get talked about how leftist discourse led to the rise in a lot of anti-Semitism coming out of Marxism and communism. That's This isn't a new, right. a new thing coming from the left. It's newer in the United States for us to see it so openly and to this level, but it's not something that's new. Hmm. There's been a few cases recently where, um, where people have been called out for just citing anti-Semitism, but not other forms of bigotry. One was April Powers, who was a Jew of color, I believe, um, who was um, fired, it appears. And the case may be a little bit more complicated than I originally understood, but fired in part because she spoke out or resigned under pressure, perhaps, because she spoke out about anti-Semitism and not Islamophobia in the same breath. There was the case of Rutgers recently, where I think it was the chancellor of Rutgers originally condemned anti-Semitism, then had to go back and, and broaden the, the, his, uh, the, the condemnations. And then, they, then that um, caused another furor. Again, what, what is your take on, on these things? And why is it that just with anti-Semitism, it seems, one has to be able to condemn every other ism at the same time? Um, I don't think one has to, and I don't think one should. I think that there's been a successful um, hijacking of discourse by people who want to silence Jewish voices and silence the hatred that's been inflicted upon the Jewish community. Um, the, there there's are statistics that are out there and widely known. There has not been a rise in Islamophobia in years in the United States of America. That is a false narrative. Now, the rise in anti-Semitism is well-documented and it's extreme. The idea, the all lives mattering of, of anti-Semitism is mm. um, insane to think when, when it's coming from so-called progressive spaces. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's just a way to silence people. Um, the, the, and we're not just seeing it in the United States, I am blanking on her name, but the leader of the Green Party in Canada Mm-hmm. Um, is facing, who's also a Black Jewish woman, right. is, is, is facing similar backlash from her own party because her, her ideology and just what she represents doesn't fit their narrative. And so what I've seen is, is those on the extreme left trying to silence those of us who visually and ideologically don't suit their narrative. We're actually perfect representations of everything that they're trying to hide and dismiss. Yeah, it's it's really striking how it seems that some black Jewish women and black Jews more generally have been targeted recently. 
I'm wondering if that's a new trend to basically try to push out of the tent anybody who might present um, an alternative, represent maybe an alternative sensibility. Um, I mean, I think that it's something that our our, uh, Mizrahi brothers and sisters have been facing, you know, because again, like like you said, that the just the presentation and, and thought of us counters the narrative that's coming out of these spaces. Yeah, yeah. I'm half myself, by the way. I'm my mom's from Baghdad. Um, so um, yeah, that's it's it's a really it's really crazy. Um, I want to um, I want to ask you about a controversy. I don't know if you're aware of it. Um, this is one of the things that led me to feel like there was a problem in the Jewish community that mirrors the larger problem. Um, Two uh, demographers, Ira Sheskin and uh, Arnold Dushevsky, um, these are people who do annual population surveys for various communities, um, read a study that was, um, that was put out about numbers of Jews of color that they felt was inflated, that said it, there were 12 to 15% when they were going off of the previous Pew survey in 2013, which said about 6%. And they and they, they these were people who in their piece said we, we have to do a better job of welcoming, including Jews of color, and and they made all the right comments. But just because they challenged the numbers, they were publicly pilloried. And there was a letter signed by twenty five hundred mostly progressive Jews who condemned them for uh, writing this article um, on the number of Jews of color. Um, just a, a few weeks ago, the Pew study came out with its second major study of Jewish population and found that it was about 8% Jews of color, which you'd expect in eight years time with adoption, with intermarriage and the like, an increase in the number, especially among young people of Jews of color. So there are there are uh, growing numbers, but they're not 12 to 15% yet. And they were just using the, the numbers that they had available to them. Um, I, I'm still struck that there were people that attacked sociologists, uh, not social scientists for reporting on their own work and what they saw in the data. Do you have any thoughts on that? Or is that, is is that, were you aware of this controversy? I'm, I'm slightly aware of it. I don't know a lot of the details in it. And I'm, I'm curious if you can say a little bit more about what, what was the, what I'm confused is what the controversy is. So th- there were there were progressive Jews felt this was a kind of erasure okay. of African Americans and felt um, and it was um, and they were even accused of a sort of white intellectualism by by white Jews um, for putting ahead their sort of intellectual findings over the dignity and standing of Jews of color in our community um, and that that felt very illiberal to me I mean um, you know we can be extremely inclusive of Jews of all backgrounds and and upbringings and the like, and yet still be honest about numbers without feeling we need to inflate numbers or silencing people who choose to challenge the numbers. I mean, we want, that's what liberalism is. It's about challenging ideas. So so there was then a petition that was organized, signed by 2,500 people, um, really um, condemning these two social scientists for it, and it, this was a little over a year ago, about a year and a half ago, um, and it really struck me as one, um, one as an indicator that we were facing some serious problems. Um, I guess the other the other thing that um, 
concerns me, I see this a lot, that there are people making the case for these ideologies by saying we that that we've uh, we that Jews of color are asking us to take these positions. There's this sort of sense that we need to defer to a specific sensibility or ideology because we're in the, in the name of being more inclusive to this diversity. Have you heard that or seen that? Um, I have a little bit. I mean, I don't, I don't, um, a couple of things. First off, the terminology with Jews of color and white Jews is very American centric. To me, a Jew is a Jew is a Jew. And uh, the there are different histories and different experiences that, that come with our backgrounds that should be celebrated. I think that um, because of all of our, our, the diversity of our backgrounds, we bring so much to the community as a whole, that that's something that should be embraced and celebrated. The controversy over numbers makes no sense to me. Math kind of doesn't lie. So I don't under, no, I mean, the numbers are what they are. I don't, I don't, and how people also choose to identify can determine what those numbers actually are. Exactly. So there are plenty of people from, you know, Jewish people who to the outside eye, people would assume that they're okay. They're not quote unquote of color who in fact are. So I don't know if the controversy is around that, like the, the methodology of, of Not, not so much the methodology. They seem to agree that certain groups are Asian Latinos and African-American are all legitimate. They do not classify, and there's no controversy around this, as Mizrahi Jews, as Jews of color. So um, there is a bit of a controversy, although, again, even if you take it for granted, it doesn't really affect the numbers, that a lot of Jews from the form, uh, from Latin American countries are actually Ashkenazic Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, they, were, they were children and grandchildren of, of refugees fleeing the Holocaust. So, um, so there's an argument about whether they ought to be deemed Jews of color, but even but the six percent and now eight percent includes them in, and no one's arguing that right now. Okay, okay. No, I mean I think that trying to to argue numbers and math is just it's silliness, and it, it's it's um, going down a rabbit hole of a lot of untruths and 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 um, just false narratives that are unnecessary. I, I don't understand the point of right. Of that. Yeah, hopefully the, um, some of the people that sign that and push that are going to take a different stance. And my understanding is they're now starting to use the eight percent figure, which is, which is good news. There's a um, there's a bit of a, a growing backlash against the backlash that I'm starting to pick up on. The backlash was a feeling that there was an established way of thinking about these issues and a stifling of public conversation. Then there's people like me, maybe like you who are going and saying, I'm sorry, but that's illiberal. We're going, we want, we believe it's better for society ultimately to have a more open conversation, let the chips fly where, you know, fall where they may and what have you. And now it seems there are people saying, well, you're now engaging in mob mentality by opposing us. I'm, I'm, do you have any feel for that? I think that there's a lot, I mean, uh, there are a lot of conversations tend to lead that way because it's the, the us versus them, you're with us or against us mentality um, Mm -hmm. that I try not to engage in. I don't think that it's productive um, and I don't think it leads to any real answers or solutions. I've seen it in a lot of different spaces. I'm not, I'm not engaging in that. It, it, it falls kind of into the same lane is everything being partisan. You're either with this side or this side and that's it. And, you know, only one way is the true way, which I, I think is um, 
nonsense. Right, right. Well, this has been illuminating um, and I'm so happy to work with you. I think you have, um, I would say, I was going to say a unique voice, but actually the truth is I'm not, I mean, you have, you do have a unique voice, but, but there are a lot of people of all backgrounds. I just interviewed uh, David Ben Moshe, who's a uh, Jew of color, lives in Israel. I hope if you're in Israel, you'll get to meet him. He's really an amazing young man um, who's had, you know, some hard life experiences, but um through it all, he's one of the most thoughtful people I've ever met. And I, you know, and the more I go out there and meet people, the more I realize that actually um, we don't all fall into two camps. Uh, we fall into a lot of different camps, and we fall into we we each have um, our own uh, observations about the world, which is why I think you know having vigorous open discourse is so important. So thank you for um, adding your voice to the mix, Brandy, and really appreciate you being on here. And we look forward to working with you. Thank you. Thank you.